Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and in a slightly later than usual episode, we're going to be discussing the story people can't get away from, which is the EU referendum. We'll be digging into David Cameron's new deal from Brussels, the arrival of Michael Gove and Boris Johnson into the Brexit camp, and what's going to happen over the next three months of campaigning. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by the FT's top political minds, our political editor George Parker and our political columnist Philip Stevens and Janine Ganesh. Thank you all for joining. So we'll begin by looking at the Prime Minister's big new deal. On Friday, he announced that he was happy with what had been offered by the 28 other countries and came back and announced that we're going to have a referendum on June the 23rd. So George Parker, I'll begin with you. You were in Brussels. You were there for the big moment, a Neville Chamberlain moment, maybe, if you're being, <laughs> if you're being uh, unfair to the Prime Minister. What did you make of the deal? Was it worth all the effort? Well, it seems like quite a long time ago now that we've had these two sleepless nights in Brussels. Um, look, I mean, I think the important thing for David Cameron was that he went to Brussels. He needed to show that he was taking the British concerns uh, British concerns to Brussels and that people were listening to him and they were doing something about it. I think the detail of the deal will quickly fade into people's memories because this referendum is going to be about much bigger issues about the economy, national security, Britain's place in the world. I think there were probably two slightly useful things in terms of um, the British relationship with the EU that David Cameron secured. I think the most important thing was there was a codification of the rules governing the way that the single market operates when you basically have two different clubs within one club, the Eurozone and the non-Eurozone, and a mechanism by which David Cameron can refer up to the European Council heads of governments if he feels the City of London in particular has been discriminated against by the Eurozone. There was also the absolutely crystal clear declaration that ever closer union, the EU's guiding mission, does not apply to the UK. But beyond that, a lot of it was just tinkering, some fairly half-hearted attempts to control benefits to migrant workers, which will have absolutely zero effect on the number of people coming to work in this country, and some motherhood and apple pie declarations about competition and trade deals. But I think the important thing for David Cameron was that he looked like he'd gone out there, he'd stayed up for two nights, he'd looked Francois Hollande in the eyes, and he'd come back with a deal and that theoretically, at least, the referendum campaign got off on a good footing. Because when you looked at it, Janan Ganesh, it did seem it was a very hard-fought deal, right down to the wire, keeping people like George up all hours. But in fact, a lot of that was just political choreography to make it look as if David Cameron had fought a hard deal. Is there anything in there that you think does classify as something that's very, very well done for the Prime Minister for getting that back? Well, the, my worry about the renegotiation was always that the area of renegotiation that matters most to the country, which is protecting non-Euro countries within the EU, is not the area of renegotiation that matters to voters, which is obviously migration. And so the, di- the dilemma for the government is do you prioritise winning a referendum 
in which case you put your diplomatic eggs into the migration basket? Or do you focus on the sort of 20-year strategic interest of preventing Britain becoming a rubber stamp within the EU, in which case you prioritise protecting non-Euro countries? And it looks like you put a bit more weight onto migration. Maybe, understandably, he's got a referendum as soon as uh, the end of June. And it leaves me worried that we end up voting to stay in the EU uh, and then find ourselves returning to this problem of whether we're in an invidious position within the EU as the Eurozone integrates, if it does integrate. So I'm, I'm, my, my concern about the renegotiation is not the saleability of it to the public. It's the uh, inherent quality of it when it comes to the British diplomatic interest. We'll come back to the saleability in a moment, but Philip, this is the big question, that there is some kind of treaty change in the pipeline for 2019. And the question is, where is Britain in Europe now? Because there was talk of us being labelled an associate member. Now, we haven't quite got that. But as George says, we have got this protection from ever closer union now. Do you think there's an argument that Britain is now weaker or stronger or just about the same in the EU? I don't think it's weaker or stronger. I think as as George said, I mean, there are some useful changes uh, in the agreement reached by David Cameron. But I think it's pretty immaterial first to the referendum and also to the shape of our membership should uh, Britain vote to remain in the EU. I mean, we have been a rather semi-detached member of the EU almost from the moment we joined, as it were. We've never really been enthusiastic uh, Europeans And we're outside the euro, we're outside uh, Schengen. I think symbolically we're now outside ever closer union. So whether you call it associate membership or something else, I don't think it matters. We are a different sort of European member. Um, I personally think that's not particularly in our national interest. Others feel a lot more comfortable with it. So, George, when this deal came back, what was the sense in Westminster from Conservatives? And the Labour Party has been a little bit absent for all this generally. We've heard a bit from Alan Johnson, who's leading the Labour Stronger in Britain campaign. But Jeremy Corbyn hasn't really been seen. Um, So what was the sense from Labour and also from Conservatives? What is it, a pat on the back from the Prime Minister or sort of a slow head nod? Well, on the Labour side, you had Jeremy Corbyn describing the whole thing as irrelevant and a complete sideshow and... David Cameron selling out the British people, but all the same, he was going to campaign for Britain to stay in. I don't think that was quite the message that the pro-European bulk of the Labour Party wanted because they want to get in behind David Cameron. They think EU membership is very much part of Britain's national interest. And Alan Johnson, as you mentioned, has come out very strongly in favour of the deal and in favour of keeping Britain in. I think far more importantly for David Cameron was the way the deal was received on the Tory benches and particularly how it was seen through the prism of the Tory press, which dumped three tonnes of audio all over the deal. And I think what you've seen in the Conservative Party is a is a much greater move away from the David Cameron position than I think David Cameron anticipated a few weeks ago. It started when we saw the draft deal published earlier this month, when you started to feel the sand starting to shift, and it ended up with, I suspect it will probably end up with about half the um, Conservative Parliamentary Party, around about 150 MPs, maybe more, coming out against the deal, a quarter of the Cabinet, and now, of course, we've got um, Boris Johnson, the Mayor of London, doing the same. Well, that brings us very nicely on to what's happened since the deal, which has occupied much of the news agenda, which is the arrival of Michael Gove and Boris Johnson in the Brexit camp. So, Janan, let's begin with Michael Gove, first of all. Um, the Prime Minister said that the Justice Secretary had 
been uh, wanted to leave the EU for 30 years, which I'm not sure is quite true. But uh, Mr. Gove seems to have followed his instincts here. He's put his um, beliefs over loyalty to the Prime Minister. Do you think he made the right decision? Well, I, I'm pro-membership, so I, by definition, I, I think he's made the wrong decision. As a political calculation, I don't think it matters for him personally uh, hugely. He's well regarded by number 10. They don't even regard this decision as uh, reflecting badly on Michael Gove because they realise it was based on principle. They're not quite as sure about that when it comes to Boris Johnson taking the same decision. So his own, from his own calculations, it made sense. I think whether he's been pro or anti-EU membership for 30 years, he's been very, very strongly Eurosceptic for about that period. So it doesn't come as a, as a huge shock. I think it will have zero to negative impact on the out campaign. Uh, I think Michael Gove has been the most dynamic and impressive cabinet member over the past five years. But his uh, personal ratings, as documented by opinion polls over that period, suggest that he's not an, uh, a, an asset to the out campaign. People talk about his intellectual heft. He's very clever. I'm not sure what the intellectual heft re- refers to. We sometimes talk about him as though we're talking about Thomas Hobbes or John Stuart Mill. And when you just think, well, he's a very smart cabinet member, but there are others. So I think he doesn't make a material difference to the out campaign. I don't think Boris Johnson makes a material difference to the out campaign. And the reaction to these two... Uh, declarations over the weekend put me in the mind of this time last year when every transient event from the TV debates to Ed Miliband's policy on abolishing non-doms to David Cameron's apparent lack of passion during the campaign all pointed people towards concluding that the Tories were in a real mess before the general election. We know what happened. Just on Michael Gove, is there any sense that he's working sort of under licence? Because he's very close, personal friend and political confidant of the Prime Minister. You know, there was always going to have to be someone big in the Leave campaign. Is there any sense that the Prime Minister have said, OK, Michael, I understand you believe this, you do your own thing, but afterwards we'll still be friends, you can come back and there won't be any hard feeling there? I'm sure that's the case. I'm sure that this has been done in a civil way. I detect no real animosity, even really disappointment with Michael Gove from number 10. Um, And so I don't think it's as blatant as them saying on the day after the referendum, if we win, you are back in the job of your choice. But there certainly won't be any resentment, no active reason to keep him out and excluded because of of the position he's taken. And a lot will also hinge on the way that he behaves during the campaign. And I can't imagine he'll be provocative about it you know he's he's almost reluctantly taken the side of outs because he believes in it so strongly all the other factors his personal loyalty um his 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 views on almost every other subject but europe point him towards the the sort of modernizing cameroon end of things so i think this can be done in an amicable way and all the poison if there is any poison will be between number 10 and boris johnson but your question was was there a nod and a wink from david cameron that it's okay for you to go and do this and actually would be rather helpful because we you can be the acceptable face no way the idea that david cameron would have been encouraged in any sense at all his close friend to be on the other side of the argument is far too clever by half (laughs) i think it's clear that michael goes was a principal decision i think if you think if you come to boris we're in a different um world altogether i've known him uh like many journalists for i don't know 20 years or so and even before he moved from journalism into politics, uh, Boris never made a decision which wasn't informed by political calculation. He's a nice, charming man. I think his decision is important because before Boris, the outs didn't have a leader. 
had Nigel Farage, who could appeal to one slice of the out campaign, but only one slice, and a selection of cabinet ministers that really no one had much heard about. I think Boris gives them a public face. I think Boris also adds to the idea that the outs are insurgents in this battle. Boris is an establishment figure. Eton, Oxford, Mayor of London. But he'll play the game, I think, of the insurgent against the establishment. So I think he will have some impact. But I mean, at the end of the day, uh, no individual is going to decide the outcome. Well, just to go back to Boris for a minute, George, it was quite interesting how this played out over the weekend because Michael Gove announced his intentions on Saturday, I believe, and there was this tweet by Robert Peston, ITV's political editor, who said Boris is going to come off out and then began this media furore. Is Boris going to come out? What's going to happen? The reports that Boris texted the Prime Minister at sort of 4.40pm on Sunday and then at 5pm went outside of his house and announced that he was going to campaign for out. So even if there's a little bit but not too much of bloodletting between Michael Gove and David Cameron, there must be some between Boris Johnson and David Cameron. Oh, this caused a massive amount of ill feeling. If you think the extent to which David Cameron tried to keep Boris on board, he basically dangled a big cabinet job in front of him. He spoke to him three times on the phone, once in number 10 Downing Street. They were haggling over what was effectively a bespoke piece of legislation on sovereignty to try and give Boris Johnson a fig leaf to hide behind if he came back onto the in-campaign. And at the end of the day, um, the sequencing events was that Boris sent an email originally to David Cameron on Saturday saying that he was minded to vote for a a Brexit. There was no reply from David Cameron, which... um, gave you an idea of the white fury there was in number 10 at this developing position of Boris. And then Boris Johnson, as you say, sent a text to David Cameron about 20 minutes before he came out, came out and announced his decision outside his house in North London. So, you know, there is they are absolutely furious in number 10. There's been an operation going on with Downing Street's blessing to highlight some of the things that Boris Johnson said in the past and the, the uh, contradictions he's in the process of making. And there's just one other thing to say about Boris Johnson. You thought he'd come off the fence when he came outside his house and number 10 down. And in fact, he's almost immediately tried to get back onto the fence by saying that a vote to leave is actually a vote to remain in on better terms. It's extraordinary. Yes, you tweeted about this, Janan, after reading his column. And it's extraordinary because when you read Michael Gove's statement, it's clearly that's what he believes. He is an outer. But when you read Boris's column in the Daily Telegraph today... It's very hard to convince yourself he is actually campaigning for leave. He's campaigning for an out vote, but he's not campaigning for Britain to leave. And there is just seemed a bit of a difference there. Yeah, he's he's saying it with all the enthusiasm of one of those hostages you see on videos in the in in a in a desert state with a gun just off camera pointing at them. I think that the, the piece he wrote in the Telegraph and the statement he made outside of his house, upon further examination, make the case for voting out to commence a two-year negotiation to stay in on looser, much better terms than David Cameron secured just recently. And even then, there is no commitment explicitly to then ultimately voting to leave properly if those negotiations don't amount to a radically transformed relationship with the EU. I wonder whether it's even accurate to call him an outer. He's clearly a very obvious Eurosceptic. A lever, maybe? A lever? Um, I think he's a, he use, he's, a, he's a tactical lever. He wants to leave us. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a politician and he's a tactical lever who wants to use an outvote as a source of leverage for a second round of renegotiations, presumably a second referendum. If that becomes apparent during the campaign, if the average swing voter 
gets it into their head that the most popular advocate of out only sees it as a mechanism by which to secure another renegotiation and another referendum, uh, then the out campaign is in trouble. I think the key thing is Boris has never forgiven David Cameron, who he regards as his intellectual inferior, for becoming prime minister. And Boris is equally determined that he, rather than George Osborne, will replace David Cameron as prime minister. We'll come on to that in just one tick, but I just wanted to pick up on something Janan said, Philip, which is this idea of having two referendums and having this protracted two-year negotiation process. Can you just say more for our listeners about what that means and is that even possible? Well, I think everything is possible in uh, politics and I think if there was, it would be a huge shock both in Britain and for the rest of Europe if Britain voted out. So I think you can imagine a situation because the Leave campaign can't agree on the alternative. Some want Britain to be like Singapore. Some want us to be in but not in, rather like Norway. You can imagine such a chaotic situation where we would, the government of the day had a mandate to leave the EU, but no mandate about what would replace it. So you could imagine chaos um, sort of descending into another renegotiation. But I don't think realistically that's something anyone can vote for. And the last thing on Boris George, that as Philip just um, pointed out, all this is being viewed through the prism of the next Tory leadership contest and the idea that Boris is campaigning for a, a, a tactical lever, as Janan said. He's campaigning for that so he can appeal to the Tory grassroots as the man who campaigned for leave. And also when he goes up a, a, against George Osborne, as a lot of people think he might do, that there is a key difference between the two then. And Boris is a lot more popular in the Tory grassroots than Osborne. So does this make him more likely, do you think, to succeed David Cameron as Tory leader and therefore Prime Minister? I think probably it does, yeah. I think the, um, you know, you have to think that, you know, half, we think half the um, Tory MPs are going to support an outvote and possibly a few more secretly would like to if it wasn't for their careers being in jeopardy. And probably two thirds of the membership in the country uh, support a Brexit. So if you think at the end of this process, two names will be on the shortlist to succeed David Cameron, it's quite likely that one of them will have been in the Brexit camp. And as Philip mentioned earlier, compared with the other cabinet ministers, some of whom aren't exactly household names who are in that camp, Boris Johnson stands out head and shoulders above them. And finally, last thing on this is we've had the deal. We know where the Brexit camp now lies. Janan, what would you say the state of the race is now? Is either Because the opinion polls are all over the place. Different posters, some have Remain ahead, some have Leave ahead. Do you think it's equal footing? Do you think Remain's ahead? And what's going to happen over the next 120 days? I don't think the state of the race has changed. There is a structural advantage for the in-campaign, which is the very British and very human condition of risk aversion. All the Remainers have to do is persuade people that life is basically tolerable as it is. Not fantastic. EU could be a lot better. But why take a risk on an unspecified exit uh, whose most popular advocate only suggests it as a tactic by which to stay in on better terms? So I think that the fundamentals of the race favour staying in. I'm not sure the opinion polls are all over the place, actually. There's a huge variation between online and phone polls. But the general trend is a small advantage for staying in. And that's before people really start focusing on the the choice, which won't happen until a couple of months from now, I think. I've always thought we'll stay in. Uh, I've always thought the margin would be comparable to the Scottish referendum, so 55-45, give or take. And I don't think any of the developments over the weekend 
will end up being that relevant. In fact, I think on June 23rd, 24th, as the results come in, we will look back at the end of February and wonder what we got into a, a fuss about. And Philip, do you think there's a gun to your head now, Britain will vote to stay in? Um, logic says that Britain uh, will vote to stay in, but logic also said that Donald Trump would be out of the Republican primary race. I think the danger for those of us who want to stay in is that this becomes a vote not about Europe, but against globalisation, the elite, immigration. Another part of the insurgency that saw seen Jeremy Corbyn, elected Labour leader here, Marine Le Pen doing well in France, and Donald Trump heading the, uh, the Republican field in the presidential primaries. And finally, George, after all this, do you think the Tory party is going to be able to bring itself back together in time for September and its party conference? Um, no, I think is the answer to that one. I, I mean, the campaign started with everyone being very respectful to each other. Um, but I can give you a guarantee that in four months' time, with David Cameron looking down the barrel of a gun, his premiership at stake, it won't look like that or feel like that. And I think it'll be a Herculean task to put the party... I think the party will be put back together again, but it's not going to be easy. Well, and that's it for this week's FT Politics episode on the EU referendum. I'm sure we'll be turning to this topic many more times before June. Thank you to all our guests for joining. We'll be back on Saturday with our regular instalment of the podcast. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening. 